Knowledge is power. That's what they say, right? To know things, particularly things that other people don't know, gives you the edge. It's the reason why education is so important. It's the reason why intelligence gathering is so important. Knowledge is power. The unbounded desire for power is at the foundation of every evil endeavor. The tragedy in Ukraine right now is due to one man's lust for power. Knowledge is never an end in itself. It's a means to an end. The question is always, what's the end that we're looking for? What are you trying to achieve? And a desire for spiritual or religious or theological knowledge, you can term it as you will, has one of two goals. It can have the goal of increasing one's own glory and advantage, or it can have the goal of surrendering and subordinating one's own glory to the glory of God. And those two goals are mutually exclusive. To embrace one is to reject the other. You know, there are a lot of reasons why people go to church for, for fellowship, for the, for the singing, to see people, to be together, to worship. But if you go to a church where there's preaching and teaching, certainly a part of why you go is to learn, to increase your knowledge. We're going to read today in John's Gospel about an episode in Jesus' ministry. It's an episode that thrusts a question upon us. You've come here today, at least in part, to learn, to gain knowledge. What's your goal in doing so? The scripture passage is from John chapter 7, verses 14 through 18. Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without having studied? Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain glory for himself. But he who works for the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. And Father, as we come into your presence today in the reading of your word, pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts. As this question is thrust upon us, whose glory do we seek? What's the point of our learning? May the answer, the conclusion that we come to, not only in the in the ought, but in the actuality of our lives. 
be to seek your glory. For we ask it in the name of and for the glory of your Son. Amen. The spiritual knowledge or religious knowledge or theological knowledge, call it what you will, is sought for one of two reasons. Sought to increase one's own advantage or it's sought to magnify God's glory. Sometimes religious people mistakenly think they can do both. The passage that we've read today in John uh, today is a bit surprising. The background of this, of course, is what we've read up to this point, that Jesus' brothers had said, hey, why don't you go up to the feast? It was the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the pilgrim feasts. Uh, Why don't you go up to Jerusalem? And uh, he did not go up publicly. When the feast started, the religious leaders of Jerusalem were looking for him. They thought that certainly he must be there, but they didn't see him. And so we're told that it was about halfway through the feast, that Jesus went up to the temple courts to begin to teach. And the passage is a bit surprising because it tells us that Jesus taught, that he began to teach, but it doesn't tell us anything about what Jesus taught. That's somewhat unusual. In the New Testament, uh, in the Gospels, when we read about the teaching of Jesus, oftentimes we read what it is that he's teaching. This doesn't tell us anything about what Jesus taught, but it focuses our attention on the reaction of the religious hearers to Jesus' teaching. And the reaction was that they were impressed. But what they were impressed with was his seeming learning. See, Jesus, they knew, was from Nazareth. Nazareth is uh, in the northernmost region of the land of Judah. It borders the Gentiles, was not uh, considered a particularly clean place. People had to make a lot of compromises who lived there. Certainly wasn't like Judea, the heart and center of Judaism, where things were observed very, very carefully. And Jesus was not from a well-off family. Uh, They didn't have the means for him to study formally. It wasn't like the family of Saul of Tarsus, where he could study in Tarsus and then be sent off to Jerusalem to study with Gamaliel. He came from a working-class family, and he was not formally instructed. And yet, he seems to be lettered. That's what the word means. How did this man get such learning? The word here, grammata, means to be lettered, to have some formal education. That's what it seemed like to them. How did he get this learning without having studied? The scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law thought that they could combine being God-serving with being self-serving. That's what caused them to very sophisticatedly and cleverly twist the meaning of God's Word. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke about the teaching of the religious teachers in Jerusalem and Judea. He said, you've heard that it was said... Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I want you to notice that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus never contradicts what the Scriptures say. He doesn't say, well, you've heard that it was written, but I say this. It's you've heard that it was said. This is the teaching. This is what people have told you that it means. And a good case could have been made for that uh, in the context of that passage, love your neighbor as yourself from Leviticus. The context there is other Jews. And so we might fairly well conclude that this only refers to other Jews, requires us to love other Jews. Jesus tells us that's not the limitation of the meaning, that you're to love your enemy as well. Again, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and the law of Moses certainly says that, but what they took that to mean is that I could seek my personal vengeance on people who had wronged me. You know who else twists God's word like that? When Jesus had gone into the wilderness after his baptism, he said, he's the one who said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you and they will bear you up on their hands lest you strike your foot against a stone. It's a precise quotation from Psalm 91. Doesn't deny God's word. Twists the meaning of it. You know, we're witnessing today in Ukraine what what some people believe is an attempt at revitalizing the old Soviet empire. God help us. It was interesting that this past week in terms, uh, in light of the, the, the tremendous casualties that the Russian military has suffered, that Vladimir Putin quoted the scriptures. He said, greater love has no man than this than that he lay his life down for his friends. The Soviet Union, of course, had grown out of the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917. Uh, It, in turn, took its inspiration from the writings of the German philosopher Karl Marx. Marx had written, religion is the opiate of the people. It is the sigh of the oppressed culture, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of our soulless conditions. Alexander Solzhenitsyn would later look at the horrors that the communist paradise had produced, and he would say, this all happened because men forgot God. And it's true. That's why it did happen, but not in the way many people think. The forgetters of God were the Russian Orthodox Church. In exchange for favor, for land, for wealth, for favor from the Tsar, 
They prostituted the bride of Christ to help him maintain his political power. You see, they thought they could serve God by serving themselves. The Apostle Peter had written, It is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Let what we're seeing in the world today stand as a warning of what happens when the church sells herself to the kingdoms of the world, thinks that she can serve herself by serving God. Of course, the state religion of the Soviet Empire was atheism. Was that atheism the result of a rejection of God? We say, obviously. But at the time that that revolution came about, more than 80% of the population were peasants, and the only God the peasants knew were the God that was presented to them by the Russian Orthodox Church. And the people rejected that God. Would they have rejected the true God had he not been misrepresented? We'll never know, I suppose. You know, we see today a precipitous decline of the Christian faith in the Western world and in the United States today. And it is decried and bemoaned. Is it a rejection of God? Or is it a rejection of the God that is presented to the world by the American evangelical church? God, deliver us from descending into a socialist hell because the church told people that the gospel was the gospel of Fox News or the gospel of the Republican Party, or the gospel of American conservatism, rather than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Spiritual knowledge is sought for one of two reasons, and they're mutually exclusive. To increase our own advantage and glory, or to magnify God's glory. And understanding truth comes only through being willing to do God's will. In verse 17, Jesus says, If anyone chooses to do God's will, he'll find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Now, your translation might say, if anyone is willing to do God's will. My translation is better English. It's not good English to repeat words. But it causes us to miss something Important because the word is in fact in the Greek repeated. Jesus here is talking about those who subordinate their will to the will of God. Who align their will with the will of God. If anyone is willing to do God's will. And it's what Jesus himself does. In Luke 22 as he wrestles in the garden of Gethsemane with what lies before him. He says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, 
but your will be done. See, Jesus, as he says here, did not come to gain glory for himself, but he came for the glory of the one who sent him, of his Father, of God. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, the Apostle Paul writes, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. And, and Paul doesn't immediately tell us, is he talking here about uh, being like-minded and uh, of the same love and being one in spirit and purpose with one another? Well, he continues, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, and being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of a cross. You see what Paul's talking about here in being like-minded, in being of the same love, and being of one spirit and purpose is being those things with Christ. One in spirit and purpose with Christ. One in love with Christ. Like-minded with Christ. And this is the essence of seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness rather than my advantage. You know, the most common term used for uh, Christians, the most common term that Paul uses for himself is the word that's used here in Philippians 2, 7 of Jesus. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And the word there is the word doulos. Now, uh, we often in our modern translations translate that word doulos as servant because its real meaning is distasteful to us. A diakonos is a servant. A doulos is a slave. And the Greek, standard Greek dictionary gives as a definition for the word doulos, a slave, one under someone else's total control, one without rights, one totally committed to another in disregard of his own interests. Who does that describe? It describes the Lord Jesus describes the Apostle Paul at his best moments and in his aspirations. It does not describe the scribes or Pharisees or teachers of the law. Does it describe you and me? We cannot help but be twisters of God's word 
as long as we think that we can be God-serving and self-serving too. Until we can trust Jesus enough to lay down our own agendas, our desires, our rights, our eyes cannot be open to the kingdom of God. As long as people seek to serve God and themselves, well, as God said to his people through the prophet Isaiah, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles, among the unbelievers, because of you. And the indictment against the priests of Malachi's day could be applied without modification to the Russian Orthodox priests who prostituted the bride of Christ to gain rewards from Tsar Nicholas's worldly kingdom. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty and the people seek instruction from his mouth. But you have turned from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. Spiritual knowledge is sought for one of two reasons, and they're mutually exclusive, to increase our own advantage or to magnify God's glory. One is the way of curse, and the other is the way of blessing. Jesus says the one who speaks on his own does so to gain glory for himself. Again, friends, don't think this means some outright denial of God's word. That would be too easy to spot. The devil didn't deny God's word in his temptation of Jesus. He just adjusted its meaning. And the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, did the same. The dividing line is found in faith. Adam disobeyed God because he thought that eating the fruit was the way to gain blessing. It was a failure of faith a failure of trust. The scribes and the Pharisees sought their own advantage under Roman rule because they thought that's how they could gain blessing. And the Russian Orthodox Church caused a widespread rejection of a misrepresented God so they could maintain or attempt to maintain a political favor. And they, in so doing, brought upon themselves a curse that they could never have imagined. The American church stands on the cusp of doing the same. Do you seriously think that any political party has any iota of a concern for the kingdom of Christ other than how it can be used for their political advantage. The one who works solely and only for the glory of God, Jesus says, is the man of truth, and there's no falsehood in him. We can only see the kingdom of God and have any hope of fairly representing it to others when we give up the hope, the plans, the dreams and schemes of our own glory and our own advantage, when we see ourselves not merely as servants, but as slaves of God, 
in Christ Jesus, without rights, wholly committed to the interests of another in disregard of our own. I think as I look at this passage that John didn't tell us what Jesus taught here to focus our attention on the fact that the religious hearers of Jesus were impressed with the wrong things. You know, I think back over my life and I think how blessed I've been that, that, that God in his goodness, you know, you think, think back on when you started your, your life when you were young and you kind of made your way through life and you can look back and see how God guided you. And I was, I was blessed that when I went to college, I was able to do a double major, the other of my majors being theology. And then I was able to study at Westminster Seminary and I was able to complete a doctoral program at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. You know what I, I learned in those 12 plus years of theological education? I learned how very little I know. You know what else I've learned? I've learned that nothing that I've learned or ever will learn or ever can learn will be of the slightest value if it doesn't bring me closer to Jesus, if it does not help me to die to my own agenda, my own glory, my own rights if it does not cause me to seek above all other things his kingdom and his righteousness and represent that kingdom faithfully and truthfully to others, even if it costs me all the accolades of worldly powers and all the comforts of this present age. The religious leaders of Jerusalem were impressed with Jesus for his theological savvy. It was the wrong thing for them to be impressed by. In Acts chapter 4, the religious leaders hear Peter and John bearing witness to Jesus, and they're not at all impressed with their theological savvy because they have none. But we read in Acts chapter 4 and verse 13, when they saw the confidence of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled, ah, grammata, unlettered, unschooled, uneducated, ordinary men. And they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. The people take note that we have been with Jesus? Do they see him reflected in us? Or are we like Peter and John and James and Paul, the reason why people come to love Jesus? Or are we like the Russian Orthodox priests, the reason why people come to hate and reject the church? The reason that they think that religion is the opiate of the people. It's the sigh of the oppressed culture, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of our soulless conditions. Spiritual knowledge is sought for one of two reasons, and Jesus presses them upon us here. They're mutually exclusive. It's either to increase our own advantage 
or it's to magnify the glory of God. Father, grant to us that we would be not merely your servants, but your slaves. That through Jesus Christ and being conformed to him, we would seek your glory. We would trust you to add to us what is needful. Grant us your grace, Lord, your power, your strength. Work within us, for we cannot work these things in ourselves. Amen.